Well, we have some more good news to share with everyone. Uh, if you haven't heard yet, uh, we have a new baby in the church. Well, Quentin James O'Dell, he was born Tuesday at 2.30 a.m. in the morning. I don't know why children choose to come at that time, but they typically do. And uh, Josh didn't do that much, but Helen did a great job. And uh, baby is happy, healthy, mom's doing well. Um, they just got back actually from Boston yesterday, so we look forward to seeing that cute little baby soon. All right, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 23. We're continuing along in God's Word. There's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you if you don't have a Bible. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so you can find it pretty easily. And you're looking at chapter 23. Now, as we've been looking at the story of Abraham, I just, the more I'm getting into this and studying it, the more I say to myself, I just love this story. It leaves no stone unturned in the life of faith. I mean, it talks about that initial pressure of stepping out into faith, and maybe you remember that when you trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. That time that he camped out in Haran, we see him responding to fear, sometimes in unhelpful ways. We see him display courage. He has this encounter with God where he's questioning God's justice when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's gone through Moral failure, he's experienced the consequences. He's experienced strife at home. And there's been those moments, though, where his faith has soared to new heights, like we saw last week when he would give his greatest treasure in all the world to God, his only son, Isaac, whom he'd loved. This morning, we're going to see a new dimension of faith, the life of faith. We're going to ask ourselves the question, what happens when faith meets catastrophic loss? You see, here's another reality in the life of faith. At some point, your faith walk is going to come to a screeching halt when some form of deep, painful loss enters into your life. Everybody goes through loss. It's universal. No one lives this life unscathed or untouched by the reality of it. I've been thinking a lot on this subject as I've been preparing this passage. I thought through personal moments when I've gone through loss. I thought through some of those epic moments in history when you hear of human tragedy loss and you think to yourself, how do people live through that? I even thought through some of the loss that we here as a church have undergone in the last couple of years. Multiple members who have survived accidents. They survived, but their lives have never returned to normal. The new normal is hard, different, life-altering. Some have faced the bitter loss of a marriage. And that can be a very painful event in a human life. It's commonly said that when a marriage dissolves that there's blame to be shared on both sides. But i got to tell you, there's just some times when a marriage breaks apart, one person's being godly, they're pursuing the other person, they're praying for God to reconcile things, and it just crumbles. And now they're just left trying to pick up the pieces and deal with the new normal. Childhood leukemia. Chronic illness. Grandparents raising grandkids. 
survivors of abuse, spouses left without their life partner, bankruptcy, children in rebellion, death, sometimes too soon, sometimes too quickly, bereavement, sometimes going on from weeks to months to years. Deep, deep loss. You see, everywhere in this world, there is pain, human misery, human tragedy, and every pain is different. Every person experiences their pain in their own way. It's almost impossible to take the pain of two individuals and try to compare them together, because how do you compare the loss of a person who's uh, lost a spouse to the loss of a person who lost a 20-year marriage due to divorce? It's hard to put those things together. When you've experienced deep loss, you start listening to people's pain differently. When you have gone through it, or before, you might have heard those stories, but you didn't understand the depths of what grief can do to the human heart. But after you've been through that loss, well, you do, and it opens up your heart in a new and profound way to them. Like I said, at some point, your faith walk will come to a screeching halt when some type of deep loss comes into your life. And you're going to be asking the questions, how does faith regard loss? How does faith reconcile with loss? How does faith resume after loss? I imagine these were the type of questions that Abraham would have been wrestling with when he was made to bury his princess the wife of his youth, his partner in faith, Sarah. Read with me verses 1 and 2. Look there and we see the story pick up. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah and Abraham. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Think about this. This is a long, fulfilling, satisfying marriage. We we here in this society, we we view a a 50-year marriage as something profoundly significant. It's called a, a golden wedding anniversary when someone's been married for 50 years. And we should celebrate those kind of things. In fact, in the room, I'm curious, do we have anyone who has been married for 50 years? Anybody in the room? We do, okay. Fantastic. 65 years. Wow. Any others? (laughs) Yeah, I always ask the question, do you still like each other after that golden anniversary? But uh, (laughs) surely you do. You see, all joking aside, we should celebrate those marriages. I think of the life of Abraham and Sarah they were married before he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, if it went by cultural convention, he probably married her when she was about 15 years old. You do the math. 127 minus 15. 112 years. Two lifetimes of being married to the same person. Sarah... Abram's princess, his partner in faith, the mother of the promised son, his soulmate, is now dead. 
Yeah, they had their rocky moments. I mean, what marriage doesn't have its rocky moments? Sometimes it was even holding on by a thread. Abraham had his Egypt, Egypt moment, and he tried to pass her off as his sister. She had her Hagar moment. They're fighting over Ishmael, but through it all, they stick together. And by faith, I've just tried to think about this woman of faith, Sarah. She's an amazing woman, because when you think about Abraham's call, yes, it was significant that he left Ur of the Chaldeans, but you have to remember, he heard the voice of God. She didn't. So by faith, she hears that her husband says, I've heard the voice of God, we need to move, and she goes with them. And then for 62 years, she does not personally hear the voice of God. But she follows and stays with them. He says that you're going to have a son. She waits 25 years for that son to come. And after 62 years in that land, she goes off into attorney without having seen the full implications of the promise. This is why she's to be commended for her faith. Isaiah said this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. Friends, I don't know if it's even possible to understand the depths of this loss. 112 years, two lifetimes of marriage, countless memories, innumerable ups and downs, long forgotten arguments that you were so mad about at the time but you don't even remember you had now, a level of intimacy between husband and wife that few people in this life obtain. The void must have been Mariana's trench deep. This past week, I read a book that was recommended to me by one of our members who has undergone deep personal loss in their life. Bud Reed, here a member of the church. He said this book, A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer, really helped him in that moment of grief. As I read this story, Jerry Sitzer was a man who has gone through deep personal loss. Many years ago in his life, he and his family went off to a Native American powwow. And on their drive home from that powwow, a drunk driver crossed over the double lines and hit them head on in the midst of the tragedy. He was able to be present enough to try to revive certain family members. He ended up losing his mother, one of his children, and his wife. Several of the children survived. There's a powerful moment in the book when he reflects on the loss of a spouse. He talks about his wife, Linda. He says, Linda was an unusual woman. She was gracious, energetic, simple, competent, and hospitable. She found joy in serving others, and she loved her children with all of her heart. She worked hard from morning to evening, laughed far more than she cried, and delighted in ordinary life. She was good and guileless at the core of her being. I miss her as she was, not as I wished her to be. I lost a friend, a lover, a partner. 
our life had found a rhythm of its own. Nearly every night, for example, we took a break around 10 p.m. In the summer, we sat on the porch swing and drank a soda, and in the winter, we sat on the living room sofa and drank hot chocolate. We talked about the day, discussed how the children were doing, debated issues, told stories, laughed, cuddled, then we prayed together. We also enjoyed common interests like camping and backpacking, reading, music, gardening, canning fruits, vegetables. We went on dates together bi-weekly. We were partners in managing our home and raising the children. Our relationship was delightfully multidimensional, and here's the part I want you to key in on. Her absence touches almost every area of my life. I am haunted by the memories. At times I feel almost desperate to find just one part of my life that was not affected by her presence and does not therefore suffer from her absence. He goes on in one of his chapters to reflect on how does a person grieving go or deal with or live with loss in their life and I wanted to share four principles that I've adapted with you from that because this is significant we all go through it we all have to come to grips with it and learn how to live with it so the first principle is this that lost must be faced and embraced when you lose something significant in your life particularly a loved one It can feel like you enter into a cloud of darkness where all hope is lost. And as people, we don't want to experience pain. No one runs into pain. We tend to run away from pain. And so we try to shut off grief from our mind and from our heart. But here's the deal with grief. It's a natural process. It comes to us whether or not we want it to. It was John Donne who, in a poem, resolves a tension point He talks about two things that seem like they can't come together, an east and a west. And in life, it can seem like, you know, joy is the east and, and suffering is the west. So how do those two things come together when we experience suffering? We envision a map on a table, and it seems like they're so far apart. But when you take east and west and you put it on a globe, at some point, they converge upon one another. Sitzer says that the quickest way for anyone to reach the sun in the light of day is not to run west, chasing after the setting sun, but to head east, plunging into the darkness until one comes to the sunrise. You're facing it. You're embracing it. If you try to run away from it, you remain in it longer. If you embrace the new reality, if you're willing to go through the deep, groaning, pain, then at some point you find that sunshine of new life. Another principle, loss does not define our lives, our response to loss does. Concentration camp survivor Viktor Frankl wrote of his powerful experience in these death camps. He describes the power of choice, even in the midst of the most terrible circumstances, You see, in those camps, prisoners refused to yield the ultimate power over to their captors and to their circumstances. They realized that they were not a mere product of their circumstances. And Frankel noted that the the power to choose, though limited in many ways in this environment, gave them the the inner strength 
to press on. You see, when we realize that we're not just simply a victim of our circumstances, that we can choose to live even though we are suffering, we find the energy, the vigor to move forward in our life. And I also have found this principle helpful. Loss can be the fertile ground for growth. We have a ministry here called Grief Share. If you've gone through grief, you understand the power of a ministry like this. The purpose of this ministry is to help those who are undergoing the process of grief. Lillian Edmonds runs it, and if you are experiencing some kind of deep loss in your life, I would commend that to you. They meet on Sundays. You can get in touch with her. Info at Osterville Baptist that connects you with the church office will get you on to Lillian. See, it's the fertile ground for growth. We don't become less with loss, we become more. I want you to imagine your soul kind of like a balloon. There's an elasticity to that. Uh, When you put air into a balloon, that puts pressure into that balloon, and that balloon turns out to expand. Suffering is a pressure in life that expands the soul. So that in many ways we, we have the capacity uh, in large to experience things like anger and depression and despair and anguish, which are actually all legitimate, natural, emotional responses. But at the same time, because of the enlarging of the soul, you also experience the positives of life more profoundly and significantly. Like the next time that a moment feels mundane to you, maybe 20 years ago, but now is just so special like sitting on a beach and watching the sunrise or watching one of those grandkids run around. Those moments that because you understand the brevity of life, you no longer take for granted but live in and experience. Is it possible to live this way? Is it possible to feel sorrow for the rest of your life and yet find joy at the same time? I'll tell you, I believe it is. Because fourthly, loss requires that we live in delicate tension. We must mourn, we must grieve, we must groan, but we also must go on living. So yes, when loss comes, faith may come to a screeching halt, but faith has to start picking up again. You can't stay stuck. You have to move forward. And that's what we see Abraham do in this story. He starts living again. He starts hoping again. He starts moving again. Look with me at verse 3. It tells us that Abraham rose up from before his dead. That's the power of choice right there. The ancient practice of mourning involved a person lying on the ground or sitting in front of the deceased for a, a protracted period of time. But now Abraham engaging his power of choice, rises up and he takes care of a very important matter. Now this is an interesting exchange because we move from a process of grief into a negotiation, which is odd. It says he rose up, verses 3 and 4, and then he comes to the Hittites and says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you, give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my civilization. 
It was common practice during this time for a man like Abraham to actually go to the lengths of taking his beloved wife all the way back to the homeland. So you imagine a 1,500-mile journey to get her there, yet he chooses not to. He stays put in Canaan. There is no homeland back there. This is now the homeland. Yet you see the tension as well. He's a stranger. He identifies himself as a foreigner amongst them. He's been there for 62 years, though. He's amassed wealth. He's networked with people. Even the Hittites say in verse 5, you're like a prince among us. And yet, Abraham doesn't own one square inch of property. Not even enough to conduct a private family funeral. So as a foreigner, he must engage in negotiation. He needs to find some land. Verses 5 through 9. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me. For me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now, if you've ever watched negotiations take place, there is uh, the niceties and the politenesses of negotiation, and that can sometimes be disparate with what's actually being said and actually happening in the deal. I remember traveling to India and Toga being approached on the streets by merchants who would come up to me and they'd have this big case of things like sunglasses and say, we have real sunglasses for you. We're selling them at a good price. One point, if anyone ever comes up to you and caveats what they're selling to you is real, it is not real. (laughs) And it wasn't a good price. It was marked up 300 to 400% because I'm a white guy and I don't know better. You see, these Hittites are offering Abraham a free tomb in the same way a TV evangelist is offering you a free book if you give them a donation, right? You try to call in and just ask for that free book, you ain't getting anything without a credit card number. So Abraham, though in mourning, he's a seasoned businessman. He's haggled. He's not getting something for nothing. He's not going to buy something to bury his wife that cost him nothing. And he's certainly not going to buy anything where they give it to you and they can take it back at any point. He's going to make sure that every I is dotted, every T crossed. So as is cuffed him, even though Ephron's sitting right there at the gate and he can seize him, he asks for them to negotiate with Ephron on his behalf so that he can get the cave of Machpelah. Now, this cave is a significant place in Israel history. It is still very special to the Jews today. It was the site where many of Abraham's promises came to him, including that great Abrahamic covenant. He would be buried there. Many of the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, would find their resting place there. This is a significant negotiation that's happening right now. Verses 10 and 11. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites. 
of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. And I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. What a nice guy. I mean, he appears to be more than happy to accommodate Abraham in his time of grief. Sure, I'll give you the cave and I'm giving you the field. Please, go bury your dead again, friends. The subtlety of negotiation we're missing through the polite language. He's not giving him anything. He is upselling him. Abraham asked for a cave. Ephron says, you're not purchasing just a cave. You're going to get a field that you don't need as well in this exchange. You see, since the time that people have been making money, profiteers have capitalized on individuals in their worst moments to relieve them of their money. Back in Jesus' time in the New Testament, there were professional grievers who would come to your place of grief when they were laying down the deceased and give them a proper sending of grief. It would be loud. It would be big. It would be prominent. They made their living off of this. They went from city to city to make money in this way. Of course, that kind of stuff doesn't exist today, does it? Well, actually, I was doing a little research online and I looked at an article that a life insurance company put together titled, Eight Ways Funeral Homes Will Try to Rip You Off. One of the tactics that a funeral home uses today for the grieving is they lay guilt on people. They say things like, you know, no expense is too little for your loved one you should really consider the $10,000 option instead of the $4,000 option. It's kind of sad when you think about it. I've talked to many pastors. I've talked to many people who've gone through grief. It certainly doesn't happen everywhere, but I would say this. If I was in that situation, I would be bringing an objective friend to help me think clearly in the middle of that. So in the case of Abraham, he knew the game. He's willing to play it. Look at verses 12 to 15. Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. He says to Ephron, hearing the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. What a good guy. What an altruistic act of generosity. Nothing short of highway robbery and extortion. Now, we don't really fully understand how excessive this price was, but I want you to fast forward the tape in biblical history by a thousand years. Okay, a thousand years later, David goes and he purchases a field, 2 Samuel 24, 24. 50 shekels for the field. Now, I don't know how world economies work back then, but today prices do not go down. They go up. And so here we have 
Abraham paying 400 shekels. I mean, I'm just envisioning myself in this negotiation. I would be crying out, 400 shekels, you've gotta be kidding me. I may have been born at night, but I wasn't born last night. I said that I would pay a fair price for this field. I didn't say that I'd let you rob me right here out in the open in front of everybody. So what does he do? Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. What? Has he lost a step in his old age? Is this a a byproduct of grief? He's just making a poor decision here? Ephron leaves 400 shekels richer. Abraham's getting a measly plot of land, and God says, you're going to get it all? What a bad deal. I mean, this seems to be, to me, the worst deal ever made in human history. It's a bad deal. But it's actually a bad deal made in good faith. You see, we've been making our way through this Abrahamic narrative and seeing that a person living by unconventional faith will make decisions that appear ludicrous to people who are living by conventional wisdom. If Abraham did not have the promises of God, yes, worst deal in history, bar none. However, Abraham made this purchase because he believed that God was going to give all of this land to his descendants. What is 400 shekels to a site where his people could come back to and see the remains of Abraham and Sarah and the patriarchs on down the line and his descendants? Money is nothing. God's promises are eternally rich. And so we see here in verses 17 to 20, it uh, summarizes it for us. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the uh, field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property, his first property in the promised land, for a buying place or a burying place by the Hittites. Friends, believers have been making bad deals by good faith since the time of Abraham. There's another equally bad deal that was made by the prophet Jeremiah later, 1,400 years later in history. He was a prophet and he was telling Israel that their destruction was coming. At this time, everything that he had said had come to fruition. Uh, the great, one of the greatest armies in human history, the Babylonians, are sitting outside of Jerusalem, led by one of the greatest kings in human history, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you would think that in a situation like that, you would just simply be preparing yourself to go off to captivity. And God tells him, Abraham, Nebuchadnezzar's going to have this city very soon. Be prepared. Okay, I get that. And then he says, but your uncle Hamela is going to come and offer you a field for purchase for 30 shekels of silver. What kind of person takes a deal like that? You mean we're about to get invaded and taken out of this place and you want me to buy a field right now? And God says to him, go ahead and make that purchase. 
Ludicrous. Insane. What a stupid deal. If faith is not involved here. You see, there's a special kind of faith that willingly makes bad deals in good faith. He didn't purchase the field because he thought he was going to get a quick turnaround profit. No, this was going to be a 70-year investment. God told him they will go to captivity, but God also said they will come back, and this would be an investment that he wouldn't even personally realize, but his people would come back and realize it. Hebrews 11.13 describes this dimension of faith. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. You see, these are the type of people who aren't merely living for today. Yes, they experience deep emotions, pain, grief. But at the same time, they're not destitute when life removes things from them because their primary hope is not in what happens right now. These are the type of people that are thinking about eternity. And they see one of their most significant responsibilities in this life is to pass the torch of faith onto another sojourner exile. So they gladly make bad deals by faith because they know that God's going to give them a much better deal. So friends, what I'm telling you this morning is start making bad deals. I'm dead serious. I want you to make the bad deal of raising your children with the priority of their spiritual life even above and beyond their academic and athletic life. I want you to look at their heart and say, this is an eternal heart. They might look at you right now and say, well, you're, you're doing all these things that prioritize-wise doesn't make sense with all my friends. This is a bad deal. But they'll look at you in eternity and say, thank you for being willing to do what no other parent would do at this time. I want you to have the vision for your children to say, my responsibility isn't just to, to make sure that they cross the line and they trust Christ as Savior. No, it goes far beyond that. I want them to disciple my grandchildren to faith so that they will disciple their children and my great, 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 great grandchildren are Christians. I want you to make the bad deal with your money. When the accountant looks at you and says, you know, you really give too much to the things of church. You don't have to give this much to get the tax break that you're looking for. Make that bad deal. Because God's economy, it returns so much more, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold when you invest into it. And you know, our money's not about our own personal pleasure. It's bigger than that. It's about seeing God's kingdom advance in the world and move forward. I want you to make the bad deal of taking a gospel risk with a friendship where you might lose that friendship because you tell them about Jesus Christ but you're looking at that friendship and you're saying to yourself, if they trust Christ, I don't only just have a friend now, I now have an eternal brother or sister in Christ. Those are bad deals made by good faith. Well, maybe you struggle because on the other side, You look at your circumstances and you think, well, I've been handed a bad deal. Chronic illness, a set of limitations, physical, mental, emotional, financial. Life circumstances that you never asked for. 
a deep relational loss through move or friction or death. Remember that principle. Loss does not define you. Your response does. Even those bad deals with life, if you have the eternal eyes to see, you can live with joy and gratitude because you know in eternity God's deal is going to be great. It's worth waiting for. It's worth living toward. Friends, if you look at life through the eyes of faith, certain things that otherwise make no sense make absolutely great sense. The author of Hebrews continues to explain that while we are foreigners and sojourners, this is not our home, the people of faith are ever looking for a better country. He says, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. That's the foreigner and stranger. If they had been thinking of the land that they were from, which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return to it. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the answer to the question, what happens when faith meets loss? Faith hopes. Faith is competent in a better day, in a better country. Faith prefers to joyfully expect the deck of cards of eternity than mourn the bad deck that you have now. And even when faith comes to a grinding hole over the deepest forms of loss, it must not stay stuck. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, do not grieve as others do who do not have hope. Friend, you have hope. Jesus Christ is going to come again. He is going to call us into the clouds to join him and we will eternally reign with him in his kingdom for all of eternity. And in that place, John the Apostle says, God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, no crying, no pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If someone were to come up to you today and say, I've got a great deal for you. I guarantee that I can remove every ounce of pain from your life and make you rich beyond your wildest expectations. What would you say to that deal? I'd say, how do I sign up? How do I get on board with this? I want that deal. Well, Jesus tells us how you can get into that deal. In John chapter 14, he's preparing his disciples for his near departure on the cross. Imagine the weight of despair that you would feel. You've been following a guy for three years. You're invested in what he's saying. And then he dies. Well, this is how he prepares them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself and that where I am, you may also be. So the logical question to that, well, how do I sign up? How do I get that deal? In fact, Thomas asks it. He says, Lord, how can we know the way to this place? I want to know. Jesus responds, I am the way. I am the truth. 
I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, the only answer to fully resolve the question, how do I deal with loss ultimately, ultimately, is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to all of life's most significant questions. How can I know God through Jesus? What is life's purpose? Jesus' mission. Why do I exist? Because God created all things for and through the Son, Jesus. How can I make my life count living for Jesus? It all points to him. Jesus resolves all of those questions that we carry in this world. So the real question is, how do I come to know him? The Bible says you come to know him by faith. Faith means that you trust, you rely upon, you lean your weight into something. When you trust Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith, the Bible says that you will be saved, eternally made right with God. And I'll tell you, when you come to know him, you get a right relationship with the God of the universe. You get a home that's eternally prepared for you. And even in your deepest loss, you will be fully and finally satisfied and content in him. That's a good deal. And I hope you sign up for it today. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?